Good morning, church. It's good to be with you, to open up the Word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, infallible to lead us into all truth as God has put before us today. I want to invite you to keep your uh, Bible open to Mark chapter 6, verse 30. We'll be working through uh, that whole passage today together. And let's just pray that the Spirit who inspired these words is with us today to make them come alive in our hearts again, which is our, always our hope and expectation when we open up God's Word. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are the living God, and you have come to dwell among us. God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. You took on sin and death to defeat sin and death, and you rose victorious over both of those things to bring us into everlasting life and ultimately to the resurrection of the body. And so, Lord, as we tap into these spiritual things today that you give us to consider, help our minds to be illuminated and our hearts to be warmed, that you who came running after us would run after us again to bring us into the wilderness with you, to be your sheep and you to be our shepherd. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy, mighty name. Amen. Amen. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Today's gospel text is really centered around this theme of the fact that, as it always has been, with Israel and, and then in the New Testament with the apostles in the early church, we are the sheep of God and God is our shepherd. You know, growing up as a Christian, I can remember uh, Sunday school, sort of, and I, one of the things I remember is they always gave us coloring books. And one of the things we always colored, I never understood what was happening um, growing up. It was like my, my parents sent me to Sunday school and then it was like, that was... That was the end of it. But we would always have pictures of Jesus walking around with sheep and lambs and stuff, and we would color those in. And I'm like, okay, here's a 33-year-old here's a guy who walks around with lambs all day. I don't really know what this means. And then as I got older, I went to a Christian school, and I still kind of was averse to this idea of being a sheep. It's for, for a younger man, I mean, I'm 41 now, so I still consider myself a young man. But, I mean, I feel young. Um, when I was a younger man, and still as a young man, I would say that I looked at this idea of being a sheep, and I thought, I really wish God's metaphorical animal were, were something more suited to my disposition to want to go and win and fight like a wild, crazy horse or something, just wearing, you know, horseshoes that have been decked out for the kingdom of God. Or, 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 or could have God maybe said that you're like a majestic, soaring, bald eagle? Or maybe a raven. So I always struggled with this sort of thing. I mean, sheep are such docile creatures. They're, they, you know, people in our culture will say, Christians, you're just blind sheep. So they use it as a derogatory term about us. Kind of like the way they say what I'm doing now, preaching. You're preachy. You're, you're blind sheep. You're preachy. But here's the interesting thing. And I never thought of this growing up. And I was thinking a lot about it this week. Jesus himself is described in Holy Scripture as both a sheep and a shepherd. And if those designations are good enough to describe Jesus Christ, God Almighty in the flesh, 
I think that they'll probably be well suited for us as his creatures made in his image. What do I mean? Well, the Bible describes Jesus as the sacrificial lamb, the lamb being a baby sheep, but also, as we'll see in today's passage, a good shepherd, the shepherd of Israel. He is both sheep and shepherd. And I think this is a really powerful thing to consider because what at first is an embarrassment to those switched on young people who are like, I don't want to be a sheep, I want to be a horse. What is at first an embarrassment is actually an apologetic, an attraction for the gospel. Because the God of Christianity is not some regal, sanctified snob sitting up far above human suffering on his velvet throne, looking down, saying, I don't want to get involved in all of that. And many of the world religions, they think of God that way. He's far above, nowhere near the human condition and human suffering in the midst of it like we are. God of Christianity, as we found last week when Isaiah was preaching, is both the carpenter and the Christ, and those things go together. It's the same God. And it's this week we're going to find he's both the sheep and the shepherd. And we're going to look at it in three ways today. We can go pretty deep into the verse, so stay with me. In today's passage, Jesus' 12 apostles are going to be shown, as they come back from their first triumph ministry, that those who are shepherds will first and always and forever be sheep of the shepherd king. And then Jesus is going to show those same apostles, those sheep, that they are also called to lead as under shepherds, under his delegated authority. And then third, as it comes to us here today, because none of us are apostles of Jesus, he's going to show us that that twofold reality, sheep and shepherd, is the inheritance of all God's people who are called to follow in the ways of the apostle and be not only sheep, but under shepherds of Jesus, leading their own small flocks in manifold ways into a life of discipleship in Christ, both sheep and shepherds. But first, every shepherd is always a sheep. Look in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. Hear the word of God. The apostles returned to Jesus, and they told them all that they had done and taught. All that they had done and taught. This is an interesting way for the apostles to put things. Because if you remember, we, we haven't preached this. Actually, Sam's going to preach to it next week. In Earlier in chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, Jesus sends his apostles out and there, Jesus tells them precisely what to teach and what to do. It says that he taught them to proclaim that people should repent, that's verse 12, and to cast out demons and to anoint the sick and to heal people. And what's really interesting is there's no mention of that here, but the disciples come back and listen to the wording. The apostles tell Jesus what they did and what they taught. Now, he already knows what they did. And, what, and you can just picture Jesus sort of humoring them as they come back. You know, Andrew said, you should have seen it, Jesus. We were healing people. We were preaching. And then Thomas is over there, you know, saying, I doubt it. I doubt it's going to happen. It's like, man, you keep saying that. It's going to stick with you. You're going to become doubting Thomas. And so the story goes. Jesus just sort of is like, yes, tell me more. Another interesting thing here is that this is only this, in this passage, chapter 6, 
What does it start with? Apostles. Now, that's a word you think that must be all over the gospel of Mark. We talk about apostles all the time. In fact, the word apostles occurs in the gospel of Mark only twice, both of which are in this chapter. First, when Jesus sends out the apostles, and then here, when the apostles come back to tell Jesus what they did and what they taught. Now, why is that important? It's almost like Mark is drawing our attention to the fact that an apostle is a person who's delegated with someone else's authority. They go out and they preach and teach and everything they do is only possible because that authority has been delegated. That power has been delegated by somebody else. It's like Mark is drawing our attention to this. Yes, you see, the apostles talk about the fact that they did all these things and they taught all these things without any mention of Jesus. It's almost like, it's almost like they think of themselves as co-equals of Jesus rather than his understudies. It's almost like they think, Jesus, we did all this stuff just like you do. Just like you, the healings, we were doing that too. Just like you, Jesus. And what is Jesus' reaction to this? Well, before Jesus can have compassion on the crowds when they go on the retreat, he has compassion on his own disciples when he gets this ministry report. Listen to what it says in verse 31. And Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. And the Bible says, for many were coming and going, and they hadn't even had leisure even to eat. You see, Jesus responds not by rebuking the disciples and their immaturity. After all, they'd done what he'd asked. He instead invites, invites them to a desolate place for rest. He hears their report and he recommends a retreat. Now, I want to press into this. Desolate place occurs three times within just a few verses here. It says, come away to a desolate place. And then when they get there, it says they got to a desolate place. And then when Jesus, uh, you know, teaches for a long time and the people are getting hungry, the disciples say, we're over here in a desolate place. Why is this significant? Well, when you see that kind of repetition in the Bible, the author is making a point. The author is trying to emphasize and draw your attention to someone. Remember, when the Gospels first circulated, it wasn't in written form in the earliest days. It was in oral form. And so people would have heard, desolate place, desolate place, desolate place. What would that have evoked in their minds? Well, do you remember the first reading from today? Exodus chapter 16. You see, in the original, desolate place, as we have it here, and wilderness in Exodus 16, those are the same words. And so what you have here is Jesus, like in the old, when the people of Israel come out of Egypt into the wilderness, Jesus brings his apostles into the wilderness. In, in the old times, God feeds them with bread from heaven. And what is Jesus about to do? He's about to multiply the bread of life to give it to his apostles and the crowds in the wilderness. Jesus is doing what only Yahweh could do in the Old Testament. And this is Jesus' response to their ministry report. Because it says they hadn't even had time to eat. What Jesus sees is a form of ministry, a pattern of life that is headed for a certain burnout. Burnout. 
burnout. The apostles weren't going to be able to source for themselves what they needed to feed on from the shepherd's provision. And yet, their model of ministry seems to rely on the fact that they, in and of themselves, were sort of on equal ground with Jesus and able to provide. And we're going to see that that's just not true. But here's the thing. When we hear a scripture like this, we don't want to just look at them back then. We want to look at ourselves right now. They were heading for burnout because they were forgetting to eat because they were so enamored with the work that they were doing. How about us? Are you so enamored by the work that you're doing, even the good work of ministry, work in your family, your vocation? Are you so enamored by it and in love with it that you're becoming dangerously unbalanced? Do you see, are you creating, do you exist in a place where virtue is seen as overworking and underresting. You know, to those who come to Jesus on the last day with a resume and a CV and all their publications, Jesus is not going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've neglected your health, your family, and right worship in the name of success and upward mobility. But on the other hand, Jesus is not going to say, just be mediocre, for that is what I enjoy from Christians. <laughs> and that's how I took it when I was younger. It's like, Jesus doesn't want me to be ambitious, so he wants me to be mediocre. And I'm not going to be mediocre. I want to fight. I want to go. I want to win. You sometimes feel that in you? And then, and then sometimes you can feel in the church, it's like, settle down. Just don't do anything. Just be mediocre. See, I don't think Jesus is anti-ambition. I mean, after this, after he recalibrates the disciples' vision of ministry, he doesn't say, let's just continue to have a retreat forever. No. He goes, he heals, he brings the gospel all over the world. The disciples go more and more and more. It's only that they've been recalibrated around Jesus. You see, the gospel, Christianity, Jesus is not an ambition killer. It's an ambition recalibrator. If the apostles kept on going the way they were going, they would have burned out, and so will I, and so will you, unless we come to the shepherd as sheep before we presume to lead as shepherds ourselves. We need to feed on him in the wilderness. And friends, when we hear this sort of thing, we can say again, oh, I understand what happened to them then. But when the Word of God speaks and the Spirit of God speaks through the written Word, He's not just telling you facts about them then. He's calling you to something here and now. He's calling you to something. So hear the words that Jesus spoke to them as He speaks to you from His Word this morning, wherever you're at in life, and answer accordingly. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Come away to a desolate place by yourselves and rest a while. The apostles were not beneath hearing that, and neither am I, and neither are you. And Jesus is the one that we come to when we make that trek out to the wilderness. And though the floor would fall out beneath us if we kept trying to sustain this thing ourselves, the wideness of the arms of Christ are eternally open 
for those who would come to him to feed on his life-giving self. And you say, I did that in 1972 or 1986 or 1994. Do it again today. Do it again every day. That's the nature of repentance. That is not a burden. That is freedom. Hallelujah. The gospel's true. Did the apostles answer? Yeah. Look at verses 32 to 34. They get in the boat with Jesus and they head on out to the wilderness. They went in a boat to a desolate place. That's the third time. Uh, That's the second time. And now many saw them going and recognized them. And then people started running from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Looks like their retreat's canceled. It's now turned into an event. And they still haven't eaten, by the way. Did you notice that? It never says they stopped for a quick snack and then the event started. It's like they get in there and things just get crazy. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. You see, here's where the shift starts to happen. Instead of the disciples saying, we did, we taught, we this, we that, Jesus says, I'm going to start teaching now. Remember who the shepherd is, sheep. And the disciples are starting to experience that in the wilderness. Now, this phrase, sheep without a shepherd, this reflects language used about Israel in the Old Testament. If you look at Numbers 27, 17, if you look at 1 Kings 22, 17, if you look at Ezekiel 34, verse 5, I have those written down here. I'm not that smart. People are like, oh, yes, Ezekiel, just in the 34th chapter, as I was there yesterday. Um, We're not going to have time to peruse Ezekiel right now, although it's an amazing book. What I would suggest, if you want to write down in your sermon guides, later tonight, look through Ezekiel 34 and and then put that passage up against the passage we're in, and you're going to see some amazing things happen. I'll sum it up for you in verse 34, uh, chapter 34, verse 23 of Ezekiel. This is where it goes. I will set up over them... One shepherd. This is in the Old Testament, right? One shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them, and he will feed them and be their shepherd. And what we have happening in the Gospel of Mark here is Jesus stepping in, the one in the line of David, who comes in to feed Israel as the shepherd of Israel. Just as Israel came out of Egypt on an exodus from slavery under Pharaoh, Jesus brings us out of a slavery to sin and Satan and death and brings us into the wilderness not to eat manna from heaven, but to eat bread from heaven, which ultimately is to feed on his very life as his sheep. We are first, we are foremost, we are always and evermore sheep of Jesus Christ. You never graduate from that position, even when Jesus says the sheep are meant to become shepherds and under-shepherds of my flock. You always and evermore remain sheep of Jesus. And that's what the apostles needed to hear. Now, what's this business about us becoming shepherds? At the end of this account, what does Jesus do? Does he personally take the massive amounts of bread that he's um, transformed and hand deliver it one by one to each of the people? If you look at the account in the text, this is where we start to get Jesus' own idea of shepherd leadership. Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fish, and who does he give it to? 
He gives it to the apostles to distribute to the people. The sheep have been shepherded by the shepherd, and then the sheep themselves become under shepherds to serve God's people with God's provision. It's a beautiful thing. In verse 35, this is the third reference to a desolate place, to the wilderness. And again, this is an echo of Exodus 16, where God makes manna from heaven, bread from heaven. What's interesting, though, is did you catch the disciples' response? The disciples still, they don't quite get it. And, and, you know, fair enough, they didn't have this book, which we have. We congratulate ourselves all the time. We're like, I can't believe they didn't see it. I would have seen it. Well, yeah, you've read the whole book, presumably. So you sort of know what's going to happen. It's like, you know, I don't walk around and say, well, I know that Darth Vader is Luke's father. And, you know, um, you know and, and so that's something I should be proud of. Well, yeah, I saw, I've seen all the Star Wars episodes. Right, so I know that. I, I think that's actually wrong. I shouldn't have said that. Some people might not have seen Star Wars yet. So you got a lot of stuff to do this afternoon, but I think I just sold, uh, sold you down the river there. Sorry about that. Um, oh, God, can you forgive me? Oh, please. The question is, can George Lucas forgive me? Well, I forgive him for Jar Jar Binks and for all the uh, episode one, two, and three and all that terrible CG. But enough about that. Back to Jesus What do the disciples do? They don't watch Star Wars. They recognize that they don't have the provision. And what is their impulse? Do they turn to Jesus and say, hey, man, we've heard desolate place, desolate place, desolate place three times. We're in the wilderness. Can you you hook us up with some bread from heaven? No. It says they recommend, they command is what they do. In the Greek, it's actually a command. They command Jesus, send them away And what does it say? Not only so they can get food, send them away so they can get food for themselves. The so-called shepherds in training, their impulse to not being able to provide for the people is to say, God, the going is, it's really gotten tough. Send these people away. Let the sheep satisfy and care for and feed themselves. That is the same impulse that got them in this situation in the first place. This mentality that they can do these works and they can talk about these works in any way separate from Jesus, who is the source and the provision himself, is what got them to need a retreat in the first place on the verge of burnout. And so here they are, trekking into the wilderness only to send the sheep away from the shepherd. And this is a very dangerous type of ministry, and it's what happens when we think Gosh, Jesus, you know, he's aloof. He's like the ultimate eccentric professor. He's, he's, in his, he's doing his thing. He's not remembering that these people need to eat. Let's just send these people away from Jesus. And this is a dreadful thing. We sang a song about God running after us and his goodness. Have you had that experience when you were not seeking God when he's run after you? It's not that you were, you're like, I want you, Lord, please take me. You weren't even looking for him, and he came to you, and he saved you, and he brought you close to him to feed on his provision. What if the shepherd in your life at that time said, find that provision yourself? That's my ministry to you. And so when it comes to being sheep, we need the shepherd. And when it comes to being shepherd over the little flocks that God gives us, we don't send the sick and hungry away. We seek and save the lost by the power of Jesus. 
and only through Jesus' provision and only on the basis of everything that he is and provides and always will be for us. But that's not all. Verses 38 through 39 are, of course, when the miracle happens. He says, what's Jesus' answer to their command? Jesus, send these people away. What does Jesus say? Jesus commands back to them. Here's where Jesus, you know, Jesus is starting to get, uh, get under their skin a bit. And he says, why don't you give them something to eat? Why don't you give them something to eat? And the disciples' response is almost like I would respond to my mom when I was a teenager. Uh, and, you know, I would just say, do you expect me to take 200 denarii worth of wages and just, what do you want me to go buy bread for all these people? Okay. Yeah. It's like, you talk to your mom like that? Yeah, I know. Things are different in Boston. I've changed. That's what they sound like. That's their response to Jesus. And what's Jesus' response? What do you have? And they say, five loaves and two fish. Now, I'm not the greatest at math, but when you add five plus two, I can handle that uh, as, as a kind of mathematician that I am. And what does that come to? Seven. And what does the number seven mean in Hebrew culture and all throughout Israel's time? It's a number that means completion and fullness in divinity. This is divinity meeting humanity in the middle of the wilderness to fulfill their deepest need to source what they couldn't source themselves, to replace what they wanted to send the sheep away to source for themselves, right here in the midst of them. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, God with you. What does Jesus do? Verse 39, it says, Jesus commands the crowds to sit. Don't miss that word. Jesus doesn't say, just, you know, do whatever, you know. I'm not a directive leader. I'm Jesus. I'm mild and meek, and I really have no stake in the game. Jesus commands them to sit in groups of 50 and 100. And you say, well, what is the point of that? That's the sort of thing I would normally just skip over and be like, I guess they like those numbers. I don't know. seems kind of large for a small group, but that's not what was happening. If you look behind this from the early stages of the church, if you read the church fathers, if you read interpreters through the ages, there's another echo of the Old Testament here. And it's from Exodus chapter 18. Now, if you don't know what happened in Exodus chapter 18, it's an Old Testament chapter, and what was happening was Moses was the only guy who was spending from the morning to the evening administrating Israel's problems, basically. And Jethro, who's the father-in-law of Moses, comes and says, what are you doing? You're going to burn out. The whole passage of Exodus 18 is about this. You're going to burn out. Sounds a lot like what's happening here. He says, what you need to do is get faithful men and delegate authority to them to carry out the task of ministry and together bear that burden. And what happens at the end of that passage in Exodus 18 is Jethro says, break them up into groups of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and so on and so forth. And there's this tradition, even in the Dead Sea Scrolls, of breaking people up into groups like that. Now, this is significant because underneath the surface of this is a form of ministry that says the sheep first and always and foremost need the shepherd Jesus, but the shepherd Jesus doesn't hand deliver every piece of bread. He anoints, he equips, he empowers, and he delegates that authority 
to people who are his under shepherds. And you then, as we conclude, might say to yourself, I am neither a real shepherd nor a metaphorical one. Oh, but you are. Oh, but we all are. Yes, we're always first and foremost sheep needing Jesus' provision, but it is the fact that we are all called to become under shepherds of Jesus. You don't need to be a priest or a deacon or a Sunday school leader. All those things are good things. You don't need to be employed by the church to be doing these things. The fact of the matter is that by virtue of your baptism, you have been given a charge by Jesus that comes in Matthew 28. What does he tell us? To go into the world and what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then is there anything else? What is a good disciple being done? Are they just looking to coach Jesus? Baptizing them. And then Jesus says, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. You want to know what discipleship is? It's following Jesus' command. You say, I don't know much about Jesus. Here's the apostolic, inspired, infallible deposit of faith that will lead you on that journey. And the fact of the matter is, you might be a mom or a dad or a grandma or a grandpa or a college student or a high school student, and you're saying, I don't have a flock. I don't have a flock. Who am I a shepherd of? It's a good question. Who will you be a shepherd of? You know, when Sam said some of the impulse of folks like all of us who live around here is to do everything big, but Sam said a couple weeks ago, what if we went small and deep? And the first thing I thought of is what? What a mess it would be if I came all the way from Australia to come to this wonderful church and forgot the flock of my family as I did the work of ministry. And then look back 10 years later and says, I forgot to feed my kids with the word of God. Man, don't miss that, my friends. The flock that God has provided in your family is just as important as this massive group of people. God has anointed you and equipped you and put shepherds over you so that you can shepherd others, not so that you can source them with the power that's inside of yourself, but so that you can lead them and say, come on back to the wilderness and rest a while. Come on back to shepherd Jesus and feed on him and him alone. And then you can turn them out to the world. You know, we always talk about it takes a village to raise a child. You know that cliche? Well, I think it takes a holy village to raise one Christian. And that holy village doesn't just start in the sanctuary. Maybe it starts in your living room or in your kitchen. And in partnership with the communion of the saints here and with the bond that we have with the saints all over the world by the Holy Spirit, and in the Anglican Church, and with the saints through the ages, God is requiring you not only to be a sheep, but to feed the sheep that he puts under you. And that is a holy task. And that is a task worth everything. And that is a task that makes every moment of every day infused with the power of God's glory, God's purpose, and God's abundant, unending joy. I'm very excited about Jesus this morning. <laughs> and I hope you are too. Friends, you are sheep always first, but God is asking you, what is the flock that you're shepherding? 
And are you doing that with the might that God provides or with your own might? I pray that we do it more and more by his power, for his glory, and for our deep joy in him. May it be increased abundantly so in you today and always in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the cross and resurrection. We thank you for the fact that when we come to worship, this isn't just a building with lights and sound, but this is heaven breaking into the present just like bread broke into the wilderness and fed your people for 40 years and fed your people through the Son who is shepherd and Christ and carpenter and king. Feed us again today by your word so that we might feed others in our neighborhoods, in our families, and all across the world. In Jesus' name, amen.